I want to thank your church, Pastor, for the meditation and the preparation and the worship and the songs that you uh, led us through and your team. I have to tell you that uh, that video that they showed pretty much took it all out of me. It's just like, after that, what do you say? Except thank you, Jesus, and, you know, I can't wait to throw my crown at your feet. Wow. He took the fall above all. You know, that song that was singing while we were watching. Man, I just... It was good to see. Oh, it was painful. I'm sick to my stomach. I just wanted to throw up. I wanted to turn my head and look a different direction. It makes me remember how we're told the angels turn their heads. The angels refuse to look. The Desire of Ages says the sun refused to, to, to look on its creator being treated like that. And you know, I was thinking <clears throat> as I was feeling sick, sick to my stomach. And I don't get sick to my stomach. I've only thrown up three times in my life. And two of them I've gagged myself. <laughs> so I was sick to my stomach, but I was thinking as I was sick to my stomach, I was thinking, I'm being moved at the moment just by the evidence of the physical pain. And Desire of Ages says, the emotional suffering of Christ was so great that he hardly even noticed the physical pain. Hardly even noticed it. And so when I see the physical pain at that magnitude, and then I think, this is nothing compared to what he was really hurting from. This is nothing. Huh. Unbelievable. And we're told he would have done that if there had been only one person to do it for. Think of that song, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. Boy. I'm just going to say another prayer. I'm going to get on my knees. So, Jesus, this prayer is to you. Thank you for coming to our rescue. Thank you for seeing us helpless. 
hostages held by the most terrible terrorist in the universe. And thank you for coming in to this planet. For thinking it not robbery to step down from the throne, the worship of angels, the adoration of the unfallen worlds, the worship of the universe, all power at your disposal, setting it all aside, humbling yourself, becoming a man, spending 33 and a half years on this planet, being laughed at, ridiculed, made fun of, pushed around, taken advantage of, lonesome, even in your own home, in your own town, in your own church, in your own capital, in your own world. You are worthy of praise. And I really don't know how what I have to share tonight can fit into anything after what we just saw. So I'm just going to ask you to do something with it. I bring you these loaves and fishes. And I know that you can multiply them as you see fit. You can see that people go away tonight having been filled because you took care of them. So use me. Um, Cut and paste. Prepare our hearts. Holy Spirit, I'm asking for your help, your power, your anointing for all of us, and for myself in particular. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Thank you. Right. You know, somebody gave me a piece of paper two nights ago, and they said, 
I don't know the exact quote, but here's a couple key words from the quote. And if you have a CD-ROM on your computer with you and you do a little word search in the writings of Ellen White with these words, you can probably find this quote and it might be worth sharing. Well, it was. I found it. And it is worth sharing. And I'm going to put it on the screen right now. The end is near. Do you believe that? The end is near. We don't have a moment to lose. Light is to shine forth from God's people in clear, distinct rays, bringing Jesus before the churches and before the world. You see what the message is? Jesus. God will give additional light and old truths will be recovered. and replaced in the framework of truth. So, there's something that's happened to the old truths. Somehow, they've become tarnished, they've gotten covered with dust, maybe even forgotten, maybe misunderstood, maybe confused. Uh, Who knows? Nothing wrong with the truths, but there's been layers of something covering them. And that's going to be dealt with. Old truths will be recovered and replaced in the framework of truth. Christ's ambassadors are to search the Scriptures to seek for the truths that have been hidden beneath the rubbish of error. This is all leading up to something. And every ray of light received is to be communicated to others. It continues... One interest... You started out by saying the end is near. Did you catch the start? Because this is in the context of the final closing of this earth's history. The countdown to Jesus' return. Right? Okay. Within that context, one interest will prevail. One subject will swallow up all others. Christ our righteousness. That is awesome. One subject is going to swallow up every other subject. Christ's righteousness. Our righteousness. And then in case we weren't sure what she was trying to say when she said that that subject was going to swallow up everything and that it was Christ our righteousness, in case we weren't sure what she meant for us to understand, she gives us two texts. Before I go any further, I'm going to tell you the context of this. This, is a, this was a transcription from a little sermon that Ellen White gave at the Oakland camp meeting in August. I believe it's August 3rd of 1891. I believe it is. You're going to see it here. It's a camp meeting talk. Just a couple hundred miles from here. And so she wanted to make sure they knew what she's talking about. This thing is going to swallow up everything else. Christ our righteousness. She says... You know, once you understand what I'm saying, so she gives us two texts so we don't get confused about what this is all about. She says, here's the first one. 
This is life eternal, that they might know Jesus. Know God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, 3. And right on the tail of it, she says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So did you get it? If we could go back for just a moment, please. Did you get it? Whoa. Yes, we can. Try hitting the reverse one. I'll try it from over here. I guess the devil doesn't want us to get it. It just froze up. Okay. Here we go. That's called subliminal Christ our righteousness. <clears throat> Did you get it? That she's trying to make sure that we understand that the message of Christ, our righteousness, which is going to swallow up every other message, is really a message that's all about personal relationship with Christ. It's all about knowing Him and His Father. It's all about understanding and knowing Him. That's what it's all about. So we make no apologies for making this the only string on the violin. That's what happens when we come down to the end of time, it's the string that takes over every other string. Now we can continue if a computer will let us. The Spirit came to glorify Christ by revealing to the world the riches of His love and grace. If the Holy Spirit dwells in us, our work will testify to that fact. That fact. Our work will be all about glorifying Christ by revealing His love and grace. We will lift up Jesus No one can afford to be silent now. The burden of the work is to present Christ to the world. All who do not join the three angels who are sent from heaven with a message... and Don't advance the slide yet, please. All who do not join the three angels who are sent from heaven with a message to fill the whole earth with its glory will be passed by. So now, all in the same paragraph... She's telling us that the message that's going to take over every other message and will close this world out, that that God's going to ring in as He ends, is going to be the message of Christ's righteousness, which is all about knowing Him, knowing the Father. And then she goes on to say, and that's the message of the three angels. Did you see that? It's all in the same paragraph. That's the message of the three angels. And now we'll go on to the last part of it. She says, this work is going to go forward to victory. And those who don't get on board, it'll go forward without them, and they will have no part in its triumph. Okay, so there it was. August 1st, 1891, Camp Meeting Appeal, Oakland, California. Wow. I'm glad they told me to try searching for that. There's no other message. (laughs) Just this one. It's all about Jesus. You know? It's all about Jesus. And you know, Philip Yancey, the guy who wrote uh, What's So Amazing About Grace and Where Is God When It Hurts and The Jesus I Never Knew and there's a lot of books that he wrote. 
he went to the mountains for two weeks one time, all by himself in a cabin with one goal, one objective. He wanted to read the Bible through from cover to cover in two weeks by himself. So he had nothing else to do. When he wasn't sleeping, he was reading. And the reason he wanted to read it was not to set any kind of record or to impress anybody. The reason he wanted to read it was because he wanted to get a bird's eye view of Scripture. He thought, if I read it through fast, there are probably going to be certain themes that are going to jump off the pages at me because I'll keep seeing them. They'll be repetitive. You know, All of a sudden, I'll go, oh yeah, I read that yesterday. I read that same concept three times or four times or five times. And he was wanting to find out what is the most recurring theme of Scripture. What, If you could get an airline view, a bird's eye view of Scripture, what would jump out at you? And you know what he said at the end of two weeks when he finished reading it from cover to cover? He said... <clears throat> The entire Bible is just one example after another of God seeking to restore a broken relationship with man. That's all it is. That's all it is. One example after another of God looking for friends with us. Trying to restore that broken relationship. It's all about Him. It's all about relationship. It's all about this personal encounter and experience with Jesus. And that's what the three angels' message is all about. Tonight, we want to take a look at the third of the three angels. Before we do, I want to remind you, um, those of you that haven't been here, just getting here right now, welcome. But understand that you're jumping in on the end of something that's been progressing. So... You know, you'll have to kind of just try to catch up with us um, without some of the background. But just for a quick refresher, we have seen already, and we are going to maintain that it continues with this angel's message as well, that there's a common thread going through all the three angels' messages. And that common thread is actually a warning against self-worship and an invitation to the deeper life of faith instead of works, especially in the time of judgment. Now, not only self-worship, but self-dependence, which is another way of saying self-worship. We don't think we're worshiping ourselves. But if we depend entirely on our strength, our wisdom, our savvy, our understanding, our ability, our willpower, then we're worshiping ourselves, no matter what we call it. Now let's look at the third angel. Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11. A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And then it goes on and says, And they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, when we started into this, it was with the objective of trying to see if we can find Jesus as the heart and core and center of his book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, so we thought, well, let's look at these three angels, because that's a pivotal pillar doctrine for Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And um, let's see if we can see Jesus, heart and core and center of that. That's the goal. Well, 
there are uh, a number of symbols that jumped out of those verses that we just looked at. Uh, there, there was a beast that was mentioned. There was an image that was mentioned. There was a mark that was mentioned. There was, in conjunction with it, in chapter 13, verse 17, there's the name and then there's also the number um, that's mentioned, all associated with this third angel's message. Now, the question that we want to approach as we begin, we're going to take a look at each of those five things. We're going to start by asking this question, so what do we mean by the beast? What's the big deal about the beast? Why should we be concerned about the beast? Now, something I'm not going to do tonight is spend a lot of time um, proving who the beast is. The reason I'm not going to spend a lot of time, there's two reasons why I'm not going to spend a lot of time proving that. The first reason is you've heard it proven to you so many times that you don't need me to do it again. Probably 99% of you have. Um, the second reason is because I want us to see if we can find a message that is personal for us rather than looking outside. I want us to look for a message that's personal to us. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to prove who the beast is. I'll just simply say this, that Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 offer numerous ways of identifying the beast. And it's very clear, it's very clear in Scripture, there's no denying it, it that, 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 that the beast power that is being identified in Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 is papal Rome. So, there, I said those words. Papal Rome. But I didn't go through a large build-up getting us to that point. I'm just going to leave that for other study, other time, other place, other whatever. But now I want to move right past that and ask you the question. Are we safe if we don't worship on Rome's day or confess to one of Rome's priests. Are we safe? As long as we don't do that, are we safe? It's really easy for us to pin the tail on the donkey, as I said last night, and say, there's the problem. Watch out for it. Stay away from it. Don't join false churches and don't get its mark. But, if you study the beast, the beast is a symbol. The beast is not the problem. The beast is a symbol. We need to understand what the problem is that the beast symbolizes. I don't believe that God identified papal Rome so that we could watch out for Catholicism. I believe what God is trying to warn us about is living life 
apart from a dependent, surrendered, and personal relationship with him. He's trying to warn us against self-dependence. And so he's looking over the ages, he's looking down the ages, and he's saying, I'll give you an example. There's going to be the largest organized world religion that's going to be on the scene for a long time is going to be based on the notion that man can save himself. You confess to a man, a man forgives you, you have certain works that you do to earn or merit God's favor and his approval. It's based on the idea that you can save yourself. Now, he's not saying watch out for Catholics. He's saying watch out for self-dependence. And we miss the mark hugely when we put billboard signs up around Portland saying watch out for Catholics. That's a huge mistake. If you study it purely and simply, the beast simply represents self-dependence. Anywhere you have self-dependence or self-worship, then in a spiritual sense, you have the beast. Are you with me so far? Anywhere you have self-dependence or self-worship, in a spiritual sense, you have the beast. Don't have to be in Rome to have the beast. Is it possible for a church to worship itself even though it's not the church that's been pinpointed by the prophecies? Is it possible for a church to make bold claims about having the truth and finishing the work? Is it possible? You know, there's a reason that people tell that joke that you've all heard about angel giving somebody a tour of heaven. There's a reason why they tell that joke. You know the one I'm talking about? Some of you don't, some of you do. It's not very funny, actually. It's sort of sad. Angel's giving someone a tour and he's saying, okay, over here we have the Lutherans. In this part of the city, we have the Baptists. And out here, we have the Presbyterians. This is the area where the, um, you know, he's going down the list of all these different groups of people who had sought to follow God as best they knew how. And as they're walking, there's this huge wall that they have to kind of work our way around and Finally, the person who's being given the tour asks the angel, you know, you've shown me all these different places where all these different people are, but what's the deal with this wall? And the angel says, shh, the other side of the wall is where the Adventists are and they don't know anyone else is here. I said, it's not really funny, it's sad. But the reason that story evolved was because somehow we communicated to people that we are so we have such a handle on truth that we are exclusive and if they don't become part of us they're never going to be there
It's possible for that to become a form of self-worship. And if that happens, then it's possible for what the beast symbolizes to be a part of even our own church. Well, that's churches. That's corporate. What about individuals? Last night we talked about how easy it is for individuals to stubbornly insist on doing it themselves. I gave personal testimony of my own struggles with depending on God part of the time, depending on myself part of the time, and trying to learn to depend upon God all the time. Well, that self-dependence is what the beast represents. So now we can skip right across churches that can have the beast problem, other than the one-fingered. We can skip right down to us, to our own hearts, to our own selves, right here, us, each of us. If I am not experiencing a meaningful, daily, personal relationship with Jesus, then no matter what else I might say, I'm depending on myself. And if that's true, then the problem with the beast is my problem too. Now, the first symbol was the beast. The second symbol that we had on the screen there a minute ago was the mark. According, or was it the image? That's what I had second? Okay, I'm going to come to the image. I'm saving the image for a particular reason, and you'll find out when I get there why I saved it. So I'm going to the mark. You took notes, so you have me before I... Okay, so... I'll make sure I correct that for the slide. Okay, I want to look at the mark. According to prophecy, the beast's mark is his ordained day of worship. This is stuff that's old hat to most of us here. And it is a matter of historical record, and it is also clearly put forth and proclaimed by the Roman Catholic Church that they substituted Sunday for Saturday as the day of worship. So there's not really any dispute here. They claim that in their own books, their own literature, their own canons, their own encyclopedias, and history verifies it. I don't want to make a big case about that. I want us to see the important symbolism and apply it to our own hearts. The sole basis for the change of the Sabbath, or the attempted change of the Sabbath, the sole basis is the authority of a man. So, Once again, we see in this symbol a warning against depending upon a man, which is another way of saying self-dependence is our big problem. You see it? We can get, we can miss the whole mark if we say, miss the mark. (laughs) 
We can miss the point if we pin it to a day and we say, as long as I don't worship on Sunday, I don't have the mark because Sunday's the mark of the beast. We've missed the point. It's not about Sunday. Sunday's a symbol of self-dependence. It's about self-dependence. So, you can go to church on Saturday, be self-dependent, and have the mark of the beast. Because the mark is self-dependence. And Sunday is just used as an example. Now, a deeper study of Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, 17 leads us to the conclusion that the beast's name and the beast's number actually refer to a blasphemous Latin title written on a cap. You've heard this before. We're trying to uncover the rubbish off of the truth and reveal Jesus in the three angels' message. So, what's the big deal about the name and the number? The Catholic Encyclopedia tells us Vicarious Christi is the title for the Pope. It implies his supreme and universal primacy. What it's really saying is, in place of Christ. Webster defines vicarious this way. Vicarious is an adjective. It stands for, in place of another. In place of someone else. The Roman Catholic Church and the Pope claim that their foremost leader stands on earth as a man in place of Christ. That's the, what the word, that's what the title means. So we're not, we're not putting words in their mouth. We're not making them say something they're not saying. That's what they're saying. They say it in their encyclopedia. Once again, I want us to not miss the real message here. It is so easy for us to join others in the Protestant world. We're not the only ones that have made a big deal about this. It's so easy for us to just, you know, kind of point the finger and call down, you know, condemnation on the leader of that church for presuming to take the place of Christ. That's pretty easy to do. And we can do it, you know, in public meetings and try to get people to watch out for that. But do I have to be a church prelate sitting on a throne in Europe in order to qualify for standing in place of Christ. If I hope to be in heaven one day, 
but I have no time for a meaningful, personal, daily relationship with Christ, then I am depending on myself. I have put myself in place of Him. Every morning when He knocks at my heart's door and says, could we fellowship together? Could we have some time in intimate communion? Would you be interested in knowing me and my Father better? John 17, 3. It's what eternal life is based on. Would you be interested in spending some time in prayer and in fellowship, learning about me as I talk to you about what I'm all about in my, in my letter to you and, and, and talking to me from your heart about how you are responding to this? And, uh, could, could we have... Okay, and he, he's asking for that privilege to build friendship with you. Yancey said the whole Bible is just one example after another of God seeking to restore a broken relationship. So here he's doing it with you. And you look at your watch and you say, well, not this morning because I have too much to get done today and I'm already running late. I, don't, I didn't realize how, how far I slept in. So I jump up, brush my teeth and rush out the door to do my day's work. And what did I just do? I put my agenda in place of his which is another way of saying man in place of God, vicarious Christi. I don't have to sit in Rome on a throne. All I have to do is have no time for Jesus tomorrow morning. And I've done it all by myself. Put my agenda first in place of his. And his agenda is fellowship and friendship with you and me. His agenda is growing in an intimate relationship with each of us. That's his agenda. And every time I put my agenda first, I'm saying, I really don't care about yours. I'm more important. Getting a lawn mode before the temperature gets too hot is more important than fellowshipping with you. Watching the news to find out more about Michael Jackson's death is more important to me this morning than fellowship with you. Checking the stock market and reading the fine print is more important than reading the fine print. Pun intended. In each of those scenarios, I'm placing myself in place of Christ. That's what Rome's fingered for. But God didn't give us those fingering so we could say watch out for them he gave us those fingerings so we could say i don't want to go there myself now do you remember from the things you've studied about this beast do you remember that the beast appeared appeared to receive a mortal wound revelation 13 verse 3 to 4 the mortal wound was healed and the whole earth followed the beast with wonder. Men worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? <clears throat> Revelation 13.8 All who dwell on the earth will worship him. His wound had been healed, right? Him whose names have not been written in the book of life. All who dwell on earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life. This healing of the mortal wound, this sort of universal worship, 
This has not happened yet. But Jesus is showing John what's going to bring it about. In Revelation, as Jesus tries to show John what's going to bring about this healing, another beast is revealed. It is a lamb-like beast. And this lamb-like beast speaks like a what? A dragon. Biblical and historical studies identify the lamb-like beast as the United States of America. Now, if you study this material at another time, and I'm assuming that most of you have, then you know something about the previous beast before the mortal wound and all when it was in power, in its strength, early strength, you know that the previous beast was a religious slash political power. It was a combination of religious power and political power blended together. It was a combination of church and state, which is one of the things Americans were trying to avoid when they started this country. Right? They said, we're getting away from that. We don't want to go there. Been there, done that. We're going to split those. But in order for the lamb-like beast to be part of restoring the full power, the previous glory of the original beast, it would have to somehow lose that separation, right? So Jesus is trying to help John understand that according to this prophecy in Revelation, the original beast fades and then another power, Protestant America, resurrects the beast. Resurrects it. Well, at least it forms an image to the beast. America forms an image to the beast. What is an image? Well, an image is a replica. An image is something that is very much like the original. When you go to a copy machine, a Xerox machine, you're getting an image of your original. Therefore, the image to the beast would have to also be a combination of religious and political power, right? A unification of church and state. Image to the beast would have to be that way. Now, I'm going to show you a couple things from Great Controversy. And then you're going to just be wowed by something we're going to see about the image. Okay, so when the leading churches of the United States uniting on such points of doctrine as are held in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees. I'm going to just pause there for a moment. We'll just leave that on the screen. I don't think it'll fade. Yeah, it won't. It won't. Okay, we're going to leave that for a moment. Can you imagine for just a minute in your head any kind of scenarios that could maybe make America decide it's going to have to take drastic measures in order to get things under control? Can you imagine, in your wildest dreams, can you come up with anything that could cause America to want to do that? 
You know, we're, we're paranoid of terrorism. Reminds me of a graffiti I saw one time in the bathroom wall of Yosemite. I was up in the Tuolumne Meadows. I was using the restroom. 1971. <laughs> I'll never forget in black felt tip marker written on the bathroom wall, the stall wall, it said this. It said, Help! The paranoids are after me! <laughs> We're terrified of terrorism. We see our economy going down. We see our world economy threatened. We, we see all kinds of things going down. We see the environment going down. We see on and on. We see morality going down. We see violence going up. We see, you know, we heard our, our pastor brother this, this little while ago told us about a special ministry that they're doing in Reno for violent teenagers. We see all this stuff. Americans are terrified. And they're willing to sign their rights away in order to have security. The majority of us are. It's not hard for me anymore, it's not hard for me to imagine churches in the United States uniting on points of doctrine that are held in common and trying to work with the state in order to enforce decrees to save America. Right? Okay, so let's go back and I'll continue with it. That was an aside. That was like a rabbit trail. But I'll go again. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting on such points of doctrine as are held in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy. And the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. Now, <clears throat> I told you I'm going to blow you away with what I'm going to do next on this image thing. I think I'll blow you away. It blew me away when I stumbled upon this next thing I'm going to show you. See, we've taught all along that when America tries to enforce religious values using political power, we will have formed an image to the beast. We've taught that, right? Let's personalize this. Same book, page 449. This is what blew me away. In the very act of enforcing a religious duty by secular power, the churches would themselves form an image to the beast. Endeavoring to enforce a religious duty by secular power is creating the image to the beast. Now, this is what blew me away. Have you ever tried to enforce a religious duty using secular power in your own life? Have you ever made a New Year's resolution? That's the image to the beast. Surprise. Endeavoring to perfect a Christ-like character 
in human strength is forming an image to the beast. The very act, it said, of enforcing a religious duty by secular power is what creates the image to the beast. If you've ever tried hard to do what's right because you've understood you've got to do the right stuff if you're going to go to heaven, and so you've tried hard to stay out of trouble and do what's right, you are trying to enforce a religious duty through, sec- through secular power, human power, your power. That's the image to the beast. This is personal. This isn't about... United States worshiping the papacy. This is about you and me trying to change our lives with our own power and our own strength. Image to the beast. If I believe that God helps those who help themselves, that's image to the beast. We resort to all sorts of psychological and humanistic gimmicks for behavior modification. We talk about possibility thinking. We talk about positivism. We talk about picture yourself this, picture yourself that. Far too many counselors, analysts, and psychiatrists are telling you, you can do this. You have the power to make the choices that will transform your life. You can retool your brain. You can rechannel by habitually repeating things that are positive. You can rechannel so that you can get over these debasing things, these problems that you have. You can do it. You have the potential to do it. If you just determine and choose correctly, if you use your willpower more fervently, if you resist more strongly, if you stay away from those places of temptation, you can be victorious. It's all about your power, your effort, your energy, your focus. That's trying to enforce a religious duty through secular power. That's an image to the beast. Do you know what? The majority of people in the Christian world, this is not limited to Seventh-day Adventists, the majority of people who call themselves Christians, I've taken surveys, I've used students to take surveys when I was teaching Bible for nine years. You go up to the average person, man on the street, go into the mall, you ask them, what do you have to do if you want to be a Christian? This is the answer that 95% will give you. You need to do all in your power to do what's right and to stay out of trouble. It's a performance answer. It's a behavior answer. And it's not limited to Seventh-day Adventists. It goes all across the boards. I went to, I went to give a week of prayer at, a, at a, an Adventist academy. And before going, I sent them a request. I asked the Bible teacher to give a short survey question to every kid in all the Bible classes and send me the answer. So he asked them this question, and they sent me the papers. They didn't have to sign their names. In fact, I didn't want them to have their names. I just wanted to read what they would write candidly. But the question was simply this. What is a Christian, and what do I have to do if I want to go to heaven? They sent me the answers before I went to that academy to do the week of prayer. 99% of the answers 
at an Adventist academy from kids who've been going to our schools for 12 years, 10 years. 99% of the answers were all about staying out of trouble and doing what's right. 99% of them. This is a huge problem. This is such a huge problem that God decided to put in prophetic literature some very clear indicators to us so that we'll be able to understand and identify what the real problem is and run to Him for the help we must have if we're ever going to be victorious. That's why He gave it to us, not to watch out for the Catholics and stay out of Sunday churches. He warned us about this problem because it is so inherent in our nature that we're going to fix ourselves. We're going to do it ourselves. We've got to do it ourselves. If we don't do it, who's going to do it for us? Image to the beast. When I was teaching, at, when I was pastoring at Auburn Adventist Academy up in just south of Seattle, pastored there for nine years, the Auburn Academy Church. I was not on staff of the academy, but I pastored the church employed by the conference, and I voluntarily taught one little mini-course several times, sort of salted over the nine-year period. I was there for seniors only. They could get Bible credit if they took the class from me. It was a quarter long, and the title of the class was simply Getting to Know Jesus. It was all just getting to know Jesus. And every time I started that class with a new batch of seniors, remember now, these are 18-year-old kids who have, for the most part, been third and fourth generation Seventh-day Adventists and gone through our schools all the way to then. And I always started it out with five questions. Please take out a piece of paper and answer these five questions. Don't put your name on it. Question number one, what is a Christian? Question number two, what do you have to do if you want to go to heaven? Question number three, would you want children of your own one day to have a religious experience similar to the one you have presently? Yes or no, please explain your answer. Question number four, if you were killed in a car accident later today, would you be resurrected with the righteous? Yes or no, please explain your answer. Question number five, do you have any sort of personal, quiet time alone with Jesus day by day for the purpose of becoming better acquainted with Him? Yes or no? I did this for nine years. I collected the papers. I kept them. At the end of nine years, as I was preparing to move out of my office, I pulled them out of the folder that I had them in, and I looked through them. I did a little statistic, a little tabulation. The average over nine years, 95% or better, or more, 95 I shouldn't say better because it's worse. I mean, it, this is not good. 95% or more, nine-year average, Seventh-day Adventist young people, said Christianity is about staying out of trouble and doing what's right. That was how they defined it. Number two, you want to go to heaven? You've got to do what we just said in question number one. You've got to do a good job at staying out of trouble and doing what's right. Question number three, would you want a religious experience like your own for your children someday? Emphatically no. 95% or more, no way. Explain your answer. Why not? Because living like this is hell. 
trying to be good by not being bad is tough. Trying to hold a keg of dynamite and contain it and keep it from blowing is miserable. And I just keep blowing it and messing up and I'm getting bruised and bloody and bleeding. I feel guilty most of the time. And when I'm not feeling guilty, I'm feeling hypocritical. This is not a fun way to live. I would never want my kids to live this way. Any wonder that we lose them? What are they trying to do? Enforce a religious duty through secular power. Image to the beast. 95% or more of our own senior young people in Christian schools. We better quit looking at the Catholics and pointing the finger at them. Because we have the problem right in-house. Oh, and by the way, should come as no big surprise to you. Question number five, 95% or more, nine-year average, no, I have no personal daily relationship with Jesus. I didn't even know you could have one. Which is exactly why they couldn't obey. Obedience is heart work. And it only happens to people who are in relationship with Christ. You have to be daily in the presence of the good physician to have your heart transplanted. To have it turned from stone to flesh. Only Jesus can do this for us. And He doesn't do it outside of a personal relationship that's a daily thing. He doesn't do it outside of that. Mount of Blessings, page 123. The effort to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as a barrier against sin. This is another way of saying, if we think we've got to do it ourselves, we start trying to come up with gimmicks that will help us be successful. That's another way of saying that. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own to force themselves to obey. Enforcing a religious duty with secular power is the image to the beast. All of this turns the mind away from God to where? Self. And what is the big problem that we've just seen in the three angels' message? The underlying thread all the way through. It's a call from self-dependence, self-worship, to faith and relationship, especially in the time of judgment. So if I'm busily trying to perfect a Christ-like character in my strength, retool my brain, I've suckered for the very problem that we warn other people about. One of the common denominators of the beast power is force. Now, now look back at historically. The beast power tried to force people to worship their way. And they would resort to force of the most brutal kind. Right? 
trying to force people to worship has always been and always will be one of the fundamental problems of the beast. So if I'm trying to force myself to obey, I am a victim of the beast problem. Understanding where the power lies and on whom it depends is what actually brings the revival of the three angels. Understanding where the power lies. Last night we talked about you surrender, you win. That's the message of the three angels. Give up on yourself. Surrender and submit to Jesus. Enter into fellowship with Him. Intimacy with Him. And watch what He does to your life. He will transform you into His image. He promises to work in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. We're not talking about lives that make obedience of no, of no importance. This message is not about, oh, you can do anything you want, jolly will, please, it doesn't matter, because we got grace. We've been saved. Christ saved us at the cross. Grace covers all this multitude of sin. Go on and live however you want. Be thankful for grace. The moment was fulfilled at the cross. That's not what we're saying. We're saying obedience is so important that God won't trust you with it. He's going to do it himself in you. That's how important it is. He said, I can't leave it for you to do. You would mess up. So I'm going to do it for you. But I only do it for people who are in intimate relationship with me. Because if I did it without intimacy, it would be spiritual rape. And God is a gentleman. And he would never do that. So we have to have an intimate relationship with him in order for him to work his perfect will in us. Otherwise, it would be violating our freedom of choice. Jesus is what makes the three angels' messages come alive. He is what makes it come alive. And if we teach the three angels without making that clear, we have messed up bad. We have covered it up with error and the truth needs to be cleared up. You saw what it was there in that quote I showed at the very beginning. As we close in on the earth's end, at the close of earth's history, the dust and refuse is going to be blown off the truths. The truths haven't changed. We've just gotten confused. And confused enough that fourth generation Adventist high school kids don't have a clue. Sixteen, one nine. The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. It's all about Christ's righteousness for the helpless human agent. One last thing. We haven't mentioned it yet. If anyone worships the beast, Revelation 14.10 says, they will be tormented and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Now, I'm not going to take the time. I could. I could give you a very clear and indisputable presentation to show you that that was not talking about the final destruction of the wicked. But I'm not going to take the time right now to do that because I want to let you out because I don't want you to feel tormented. <clears throat> but it said there was no rest for the wicked. Do you see that? It said they were tormented. 
No rest day or night for the people who worship the beast. Now think about what is this is saying. Let's, let's put it in the terms of what we were just talking about. What it's saying is people who are constantly trying to enforce religious duties to secular power find no rest. They're weary. They're beaten. They're tired. They're exhausted. They're bloody. They're bruised. There's no rest for them. And they say, I wouldn't want my kids to live this way. No rest. No rest. That's the one group. Those would be the churched people. Then there are other people who are unchurched. There's no rest from them either. You know why? Because living for self is so unfulfilling and so empty that you have to find ways to forget how empty your life is. And so you are busy, 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 and you are entertained, 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 and you drink, 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 and you do whatever you have to do to put your mind in neutral, because if you ever had time enough to sit quietly and contemplate big thoughts, you would say, this is the pits. This is not living. This is dying. Which explains why the world has no rest. Which explains why entertainers beg doctors to give them drugs to help them sleep. No rest. No rest. Day or night. And it says they're tormented. Tormented. I, I, I wish I, I didn't. I can't get online because we don't have internet around here very easily, and um, I guess a good thing. But I wanted to go online because I, I read this earlier, and I, I didn't remember the exact number, and I wish I could. But I read a report about the industry that provides sleeping pills and medications for Americans. It is a multi-billion-dollar industry. Multi-billion dollar industry. Why? For the same reason we have television and movies and liquor and marijuana. Go down the list. It's all a way to try and escape using human gimmicks. Because I'm depending on myself. And this is not a pretty picture. And I don't like to think about it. So I'm going to watch TV until I fall asleep. Or I'm going to take a drug to help myself go to sleep. Here's another application about being tormented. Have you ever noticed how a self-worshipping person gets uneasy in the presence of people who are excited about Jesus? Ever notice that? I once pastored a church where my first elder's wife had zero interest in spiritual things and he couldn't get enough of Jesus. Sort of a sad mismatch there in terms of their um, relationship. but And I began to observe something. He always wanted to talk about a fresh story of Jesus. You know, he always wants to say, oh, you know, I was just reading in Desire of Ages and I found this beautiful thing about Christ. I've got to share it with you. Or just yesterday at work, I had an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody. And I want to tell you what happened. It was so neat to watch the peace that just came into this person's life as they understood for the first time what Jesus wanted to do. And he wants to tell you this stuff. See, he's all excited. Can't keep quiet. He loves Jesus. Whenever I was with him and his wife together, or he and his wife, him and his wife, him, it works, English, him, it's him and his wife. Whenever I was with him and his wife, 
as long as we were talking about cars or land or hobbies or children, she's there. She's there with them. They talk side by side. As soon as the conversation turned to Jesus, she would say, well, honey, I need to go get a couple things done, so when you're ready, um, uh, I'll probably be at the car, you call me on the cell phone, whatever, but I'll, I'll, be, I'll be seeing you in a few minutes. I don't, believe, I don't believe she had any concept that she was running from Jesus. I don't, I don't think she was deliberately thinking, oh boy, here goes another Jesus conversation. I don't want anything to do with this, so I'm out of here. No, she just felt uncomfortable around those kinds of conversations and she found excuses for avoiding them. Torment. They're people who worship the beast are tormented. People who are living life apart from Jesus and trusting in their own strength, that's worshiping the beast, are tormented around people who are madly in love with Jesus and can't say enough good about him. They don't feel comfortable. Matthew 8, 28, the demoniacs were pleading, remember? The demons were speaking through them. What do we have to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Are you come to torment us before our time? They can't even bear to be in the presence of Jesus. Devils cry for mercy because self-worship is uncomfortable in the presence of God. No rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. People are running to and fro across the face of the earth. No rest day or night. Trying to keep their minds in neutral. They can't sleep. No rest day or night. Friends, this is applicable now. Now. But here's some good news. If there's anyone here who's tired of that, and how could you not be tired of that? I'm going to tell you something. You know we're doing this revivalist thing and we're going to seminars and we go to churches? Uh, we were at a church in the sense we started. We had a church where the first elder... His religion was entirely focused on behavior. And it was focused on behavior and performance so acutely that he made it his own personal agenda to go from house to house of the members and tell them until they cleaned up their act with this problem or that habit or this problem or that habit, they weren't welcome at the church. That's how strongly ingrained it was in him. Now, we've got to get... Victory over this garbage in our lives and you need to get better at that and you need to put that aside and until you can put it aside, you better not come to church because that's not where you belong until you're cleaned up. Well, you know, he came to our meetings and he was not a happy camper. He heard the things we were saying and I watched him after every meeting. I watched him. He would observe the people who were eating it up. He'd be looking around and he'd see the people that are going, like, this is the best news I've never heard. And they're getting excited. Our relationship, I can have a friendship with Jesus that transforms me. Huh. He's watching for those people. And as soon as the meeting's over and we're shaking hands in the foyer, he's making a beeline for them and saying, let me tell you about some danger. You need to worry about this guy. This stuff he's teaching is heresy. And he's going around trying to keep them from suckering for faith. And finally, one day, he handed me 
a note as he came out the door. And he told me, you know, you're teaching heresy. I don't know how come the conference sponsors this. I didn't write back. I just kept teaching heresy. And (laughs) on Friday night, at the end of the week, he stayed behind until there was nobody left except me and him. And he said, could I talk with you? And I said, sure. And we sat down on the front row of the church, just he and I, nobody in the building except Margie. She was in the mother's room. She was praying for him in the mother's room. And you know what he said to me? He started crying. He started sobbing. And he said to me, I want to believe that what you're saying is true, but I can't believe it. It's too good to be true. I would want it to be true, but how could it be true? He wanted it. I got off on that example just then because I said, if there's someone here tonight who's tired of living this way, he was tired of living that way. If your life is full of fear or anxiety or torment or confusion, if you have found no rest and you're weary of trying to cope, here it is. Remember Jesus. Look to Jesus. Become acquainted with Jesus. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? A symbol of rest. Ceasing from whose labors? My own. Do you see how Sunday and Saturday go head to head within the context of the three angels' message? It's not the day, it's the symbol. One symbolizes righteousness by faith in Christ alone, ceasing from my labors, trusting entirely in the power and the, in the, in the transformation that Christ brings to them. And the other one is, I can do it myself. I can do this. I can work harder. I can try harder. I can retune my brain. I can make this thing happen. That's the other one. That's what the two days stand for. And in the end, when people choose between the day, they're not choosing because this day happens to be the one in the commandments. They're choosing because they understand that the one in the commandments is all about relationship with Jesus, depending on Him instead of depending on myself. And they say, I'm ready for that because this has been a dead-end street. Remember Jesus. He's the one standing with outstretched arms right now and He's saying, Matthew eleven twenty eight. He's saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Rest is a gift, and it comes from Him. It comes from Him. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because He trusts in you. Where does peace come from? Where does rest come from? It comes from Jesus. It comes from relationship with Him. It comes with focus on Him. It comes with keeping my mind stayed on Him. There may be no rest for the wicked, but there is rest in Jesus. There is. And you can come to Him today, and you can come to Him tomorrow, and you can come to Him until He returns. And that, my friends, is the message of the three angels. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
Um, I'm sorry that I form an image to the beast so often in my life. I'm sorry that it is so easy for me to substitute lesser things for time with you. Thanks for giving us some literature in your word to help us identify that this is our big problem and that there's a solution and that it's coming to you more and more day by day. That's where I want to be. When I think about you on the cross, the way that video started out with tonight, and I think that you're there because you're trying to restore a broken relationship with man. How can I pursue my own agenda? How can I live independent? How can I have no time for you? Lord Jesus, by your grace and through your power, I am determined. I want to know you better. I want to love you more. I want to experience deeper and richer and more intimate fellowship with you. And I want that to be my experience daily. And I pray that on behalf of all of us here. And Lord, would you sweep away the rubbish, illuminate the beauty and the power of this truth, and empower us to share with others what the three angels' messages is really all about. So they can embrace you too. For Jesus' sake. Amen. And good night.